Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. Hey folks, it's Rena Jadav here. You are listening in and watching the Healthier Podcast. And I'm super excited today to have with us Jim McCarthy. So Jim has written a book called Live Each Day, A Surprisingly Simple Guide to Happiness. Now there's nothing simple about being happy these days. The rates of suicide have exploded. We know anxiety and depression is rampant amongst teens. We actually, there was a survey that just came out that talked about something like over 80% of CEOs talk about the fact that their employees and they themselves are quite unhappy. So Happiness is a very serious topic that we are going to dive into today. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Jim. He's recognized for his very unique perspective as a Stanford MBA, internet pioneer, and a person living with a cancer diagnosis. So that makes him sort of a friend of mine, given my colon cancer history. He teaches people how to create their happiness by blending mindfulness techniques, timeless wisdom with simple science-based practices. He is a thought-provoking TEDx speaker, and um, what I, if you haven't watched his TEDx talk, I highly recommend you do. He's, his talks are not just inspirational, um, they help you reduce stress, boost confidence, appreciate the life you already have, and so much more. Jim, welcome. Thank you, Rena. I very much appreciate this opportunity to talk to you today and also to share what I know with, with your, your listeners and the people who, who follow your podcast. So let's get started with, why did you write this book? And as people read this book, what are they really supposed to do? So, so the premise is that happiness is a skill you can develop. And the reason I wrote this book is that a little over six years ago, I was diagnosed with very early stage prostate cancer. I had a very successful career in Silicon Valley. I'm very lucky. I've had a fantastic life. And getting a cancer diagnosis really forced me to think hard about what regrets do I have? How are my relationships? How do I think about my work? What is purposeful in my life? What kind of legacy do I want to leave? What sort of regrets do I have? And so the day I got my cancer diagnosis, I started writing my diary all these questions I had about how much longer do I have to live? What do I need to repair in my life? And that was a very profound experience for me. And from that, I realized that I maybe had some sort of insights or experience that I could share with people that they would find worthwhile. So this evolved into what became a happiness workshop for me, which I've been delivering to all different sorts of audiences in the U.S. and internationally for about the last six years, about the last five years or so. And then I thought, okay, it's now time to take everything I learned from the workshops and kind of encapsulate it into, into my book. So that's, 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 what's, that's sort of the, the, the genesis of the book. And I can tell you a little bit about the approach of the book, if you'd like. Absolutely, because this book is special. It's not a typical book that you read and put away, right? How do you want folks to experience the book? So, so the book really is an outgrowth of my workshops. And so, you know, there are happiness books or inspirational books or books on health or self-improvement or personal growth where the person will just tell wonderful inspirational anecdotes. And I guess the reader is just supposed to nod and say, oh, that's awesome, you know. And there's other books which are written by academics which really focus on cutting-edge scientific research, how to reduce your stress, how to think positively, how to sleep better, um, 
you know, how to be more fulfilled in your career. And that's great too. And what I did in doing my workshops is that I would have a combination of storytelling from my own life, uh, anecdotes from other people's lives, but also have writing exercises forcing people to really think hard about their relationships, their work, their purpose, what's meaningful, their regrets, what they need to forgive, what they need to let go of. And so that makes my book much more interactive than I think a lot of uh, personal growth books. Now, on top of that, uh, when I started doing my workshops, people would say, well, what's your proof on meditation helping my health? What's your proof that affirmations really work? What's the scientific proof that people who do this kind of work um, are more fulfilled? Right. And so that's why my book has 256 endnotes at the end, because most of that is heavy-duty, cutting-edge scientific research to underscore everything that, that I'm talking about that I'm sharing with the readers. Now, I'll add one other thing, which is that on top of all of that, I wanted to make sure that a person, when they, when they, you know, they, they read the book, they put it down, they actually have things that they can do starting right now on a daily basis that are scientifically proven ways to reduce their stress, boost their confidence, help them be more in the moment and, and be happier. Mm -hmm. So the last four parts of the book are practices you can do for forgiveness to live in the now, meditation to reduce your stress and also be at peace with what is, affirmations in order to think positively and give yourself the courage to fight for what's right and do what's right in your life. And then also gratitude to appreciate the amazing life you already have right now the way it already is. And, and all that comes together in what I call the magical 1%, which is like a 10 minutes you can spend every day doing meditation, affirmations, gratitude, and a forgiveness practice. And all of that will dramatically improve your life. And all of this is scientifically backed. So that's, that's a real high-level view of, of the book. I think it's, it's a beautiful way to approach your book, and I have to share this example. Uh, my daughter's going to kill me when she finds out that <laughs> I mentioned this on this interview. But this morning when I was dropping her in the morning, I was like, all right, we're going to turn off that crazy rap music you've got listening to, and we're going to do this. And just as we're driving, without too much thought, we just started doing, we started with affirmations and then mm. moved into gratitude. So it was words like, you know, I'm kind, I'm loving, I'm always laughing. And then we moved into the, I'm grateful that it's beautiful today. Actually, it was raining as hell, but, you know, I'm grateful for a gorgeous day. I'm glad it's raining. You know, we're in California. We, we love that it's raining. And, um, you know, I'm grateful I'm feeling good this morning. And uh, we kind of continued. She's a golfer. And we kind of did a little bit of, you know, I play great golf. And, and then we went into sort of some of the other things. And I kid you not, it took me like four or five minutes. And what's interesting is that I was doing this for her, and when we finished, I felt really good. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, I think I should start doing this in the morning, because I meditate every morning, mm. but I've never done this for myself. And I thought, you know, maybe Jim's on to something. Maybe I'm going to start building this in for my own practices in the morning. Because you're right, it doesn't take long. Mm. It's a matter of getting into that habit of just right. saying a few things out loud. So. With that said... Thank you. That's great to hear, by the way. And I'm not surprised, but it's, it's wonderful to hear. And when I do this in my workshops, people, people will do that. They'll do the affirmations and they'll have you know, people there saying, you know, I am beautiful, I am strong, I am a great mother. And there's, there's tears coming down their face. 
It's that powerful. It's that powerful. Chapter like, one, live I, like you have cancer. Yes. What a great notion. Live like you have cancer. The thing that we all fear the most, and you're saying live like you have it, what's, what's the thought process behind this? So the thought process behind this is, is really what I encapsulate in my TED Talk, which, which you've seen it already, but it's called what, what Cancer Taught Me About Happiness. And the idea behind that is I tell the story of my cancer diagnosis and getting together with a friend of mine named Diane, who I used to work with at Yahoo in the old days 20 years ago, and she had lung cancer. And we're getting together, and I said, Diana, Diane, I don't feel like I'm in the same league with you. I've got early-stage prostate cancer. We're not even going to treat it yet. It's that early stage. And, and Diane had uh, lung cancer, which had spread to the walls of her chest and was inoperable. And she said, Jim, when I go to my son's lacrosse games and I see the blue in the sky and the green on the leaves and I hear the laughter of the boys running on the field, I just have tears running down my face from the pure, simple, intense beauty of that moment. And I wish we all could live like we had cancer. And Diane's not saying she wants anybody to die or she wants anybody to suffer or have all this sort of pain and agony, but what she realized on a visceral level was how to live intensely and beautifully and seeing the simplest of things in our lives. And I've talked to many people who've had life-threatening illnesses, and many of them have said to me, you know, we're lucky. We're the lucky ones. And Rena, you're probably one Absolutely. of them as well. I'm nodding my head because that's me. I've, I've dealt with two um, sort of crushing illnesses where I could have died. It could have easily gone either way. I had colon cancer at 35 and a pretty serious autoimmune crisis, which again, I could have died because I was losing significant weight. And you're absolutely right. We're the lucky ones because we get to enjoy every day. I mean, I hug my kids a lot tighter and I literally don't care about anything anymore that used to bother me. Like I don't care about, you know, what people think of me or, or little mistakes or, you know, why did my husband say something or my parents, nothing bothers me anymore. I'm just happy to be alive. You know, nothing else matters anymore. <laughs> <laughs> now my wife would tell you that lots of things bother me. So <laughs> I'm not so sure I'm, I'm as evolved as you are, but, but this, this has been an improvement in my life. This has been an improvement in my perspective. Um, and, and, and so you know, live like you have cancer, live with this sort of intention, this sort of intensity, this sort of appreciation is, is a great way to go through life. And I think the sooner that a person can grasp that, the better. Now, and then my book spends a lot of time kind of taking, taking this initial shock of realizing my mortality for the first time when I got that call from my doctor on February 5th, 2013. And, and the, really the rest of the book kind of goes from that as like the impetus, the catalyst for what does this mean about how I want to live with my relationships? What does this mean with how I want to live with my, with my work that I do? And we can dive into subsequent chapters. I will share with you one thing, Rena, and we touch on this a little bit, and I'm, I feel like I'm opening my Bible right now. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, but the kind of questions that I asked, which are kind of unique, uh, and I think make the book very practical as well. Um, you might know Heidi Roizen. She's a pretty well-known venture great. capital, and she's been a real supporter of mine over the years, and I, I adore her. And she said, it's not so much you read the book as you do the book. And, and what she means is, for example, here's, here's you know, page 18, question, writing activity number one, imagine your death day. 
Yeah. And it's, you know, please imagine your death. When is the exact day, month, and year? What is your cause of death? What are your last thoughts, emotions, and sensations? Who will be with you? And that's, that's a, a pretty hard exercise to do. It is. It is. And, and what I've done, I, I did this for like the Harvard Club in San Francisco. And one woman was there and she, she wrote all these things out. And then she realized, oh, I'm visualizing that my children are going to be at my bedside. And then she realized, I don't have any children. <laughs> And she told me, she told me, her name's Judith, a friend of mine. She, she said she went home that night and talked to her husband, and they decided they were going to start having kids. Wow. All right, let's get yes. to chapter two, relationships. Now, this is a very interesting chapter because you talk also a little bit about kindness. So let's start with relationships. What is the link between living each day and relationships? And, and what is the biggest takeaway for our listeners and viewers? So the biggest takeaway is that the, 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 the research from cutting-edge scientists on this is that the, the best way to be happy is to invest in family, friends, and community to really cherish those relationships, nurture them, develop them. So that's way more important for creating happiness than having a lot of money or financial success. And that being compassionate is a key part of that. And I love to quote uh, Dan Gilbert, who's a famous psychology professor at Harvard. And he has a very simple quote. He says, we're happy when we have friends and we're happy when we have family. And pretty much everything else we think makes us happy is really just to get more friends and family. And I think if one kind of keeps that in mind, then that can kind of be your, I don't know if it's your true north or your, your, your principle. So when you make a decision like, oh, I can get this job promotion, but suddenly I'm going to be traveling 40% of the time away from home. Is that really what I want? And for, some, and for some people, it might be totally appropriate. It might make complete sense. They may not have the luxury of saying no to that kind of thing. But there's a lot of folks where they could say, you know, this is going to screw up my marriage, or this is not going to be good for my kids. And they can, you know, they'll say, you know, maybe I have less money, but, uh, but I'm going to have a much more solid family. And for me, that's, that's success. Does that Abs make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you talk about volunteering and how much to volunteer. Share a little bit about that. Yeah. So, so volunteering, so the research shows that if a person does about 100 hours per, per year, which is basically two hours per week, mm -hmm. that, that's kind of like the sweet spot of volunteering. If a person wants to do more, that's great. Um, but if a person does about two hours a week of volunteering, that's where people get so most, almost like the most efficient maximum amount of happiness and satisfaction from volunteering. There's research that shows like 94% of the time after people do some sort of volunteer work, they feel great about themselves. And obviously, there's, there's no lack of things that need, uh, need help and attention for in our world. So volunteering is one, one great way to, to really boost your happiness and, and also develop a sense of humility and also gratitude for what you have. Let's talk about work, which is chapter three, work. Okay. And right. uh, given the number of hours that we spend at work versus that we spend at home, you know, as I tell my children, you better pick something you love and you're passionate about because frankly, your happiness will come pretty significantly from the number of hours that you'll be spending at work. So... Talk about this. Talk about the importance of work. And then, frankly, more importantly, we know people are unhappy. 
So what is your insight on how can people go from being unhappy at work to being happy at work, looking forward to Monday morning? Right. So there, there's, there's a whole bunch of approaches to this. So one is to realize that in many ways, the, the people enjoy their work more when they find their work purposeful. There's research from, uh, from Adam Grant uh, at the Wharton School, which indicates that if people find the impact that their work does, they can be as much as five times more productive. Doing the same job, even being at a call center or something like that, if they actually realize the impact of what they're doing, they can be five times more effective. So now the cool thing is it doesn't mean you have to be a neurosurgeon or bringing water to the Sahara in order to find your work purposeful. And actually there's a professor at Yale uh, named Amy, uh, I think her name is Wierzynski. I'm sorry, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, but I, but I cite her in the book and she's at, at the Yale uh, School of Management. And what she's found is that you can have uh, uh, a job, a career, or a calling for your work. And the amazing thing that she's found through her research is that it's independent of the work you do. So you can, you can be a garbage collector. You can be a janitor. You can be a heart surgeon. You can be uh, an entrepreneur, a venture capitalist, a product manager. And independent of any of these titles, you can view your work as something which is meaningful and beautiful and making a positive impact on the world, or you can view it just as the paycheck. And part of why that's in, in, really insightful is because it doesn't mean that you have to quit your job that you hate in order to run off and find some sort of perfect job, which you may not be able to get anyway, or it could be very hard to get. So, so it's actually very empowering that a lot of the satisfaction you have from your work is really, it's in your mind, it's the approach that you have. Now, now I absolutely encourage people to try as hard as they can to do what puts them in what I call the 99th percentile, that mixture of unique skills and talents and passion and abilities that really makes you unstoppable. And I, I talk about how to kind of explore that and think about that, think about what are your non-negotiables in your life and your career. So I always encourage people to be as focused as they can on finding what's purposeful for them, but to realize that, uh, that a lot of it is just the approach that they bring to their work. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's got to be the core focus for a lot of people who read this book, especially in Silicon Valley, is how do I make sure that my work is bringing me happiness? And if that means I need to reframe how I think of my work, um, because often it's it's not the work itself, it's just how we're approaching it. And if you change the, your approach to it, then you intrinsically change how you feel, how you experience it. And you can go from being the misery creator in your life to the joy creator in your life. So absolutely. All right, let's get to the next chapter, chapter four, the happiness framework. What is that happiness framework? Okay, well, I started doing this, this happiness workshop and... Um and, uh, and people are saying, well, wait a minute, what, what do you even mean by happiness, Jim? This term's thrown around so many, so many different ways. And I said, you know, you're right. Let me, let me think really hard about this and, and kind of consult with the best, the best thinking that I have. And, 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 and basically the way I describe it very briefly is this way. If you think about when you're on vacation on the beach, you're sipping cocktails, you then go dancing with your partner, have a lovely night, great food just your dream kind of vacation day. 
and I raised my hand in, my, in the workshops and keynotes that I give and said, okay, who would, who, would this make you happy? And many people raised their hand and said, yeah, it sounds great. Okay. And I said, okay, well, how about this? How about imagine you're working in a nursing home and you're dealing with, with senior citizens who have Alzheimer's. You have to change diapers for a lot of them throughout the day. It, you don't get paid a lot. You're a single parent. You're not making, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough life. But how many would make, how many would find that could make them happy? And other people would say, yeah, they would. And it's not a trick question, but the point is, is over here, this is what I call pleasure. This is the pleasure part of fun, of happiness. And that's, that's nice. That's, that makes a lot of people happy to a certain extent. And over here is purpose, doing what's meaningful, impactful. Uh, you feel great about it. It's creating a legacy you're proud of. You feel like you're a role model and you're really helping other people, and that's purpose. And so my framework for happiness is really pleasure over here purpose over here and finding that right mix and balance of both and, and just kind of being aware of that. And then if you want, I can dive into my happiness matrix, but uh, let me, let me stop there and see how that is for you. Well, we know that pure pleasure doesn't work. I mean, you look at how many very wealthy, very beautiful stars are incredibly unhappy, right? So it's pretty easy to see that, Hey, just having tons of money or just living on a boat in the, you know, on an island will not create lasting happiness. I mean, it absolutely will create that little burst, that initial burst of joy, mm -hmm. but that, that goes away. You know, the, our brain very quickly makes that into the norm and says, what next? Right. So pure pleasure isn't going to guarantee long-term happiness. And so then the question really is, well, what is it that, creates long-term, sustained, ongoing happiness. And I think um, definitely your, your second part of it, which is meaning and value and giving back, is, is a lot more of a long-term play. But was there anything else that you found? I mean, there's been so much written about this from, you know, Buddhism's approach to um, happiness to, of course, you know, ancient, you know, Indian Vedic texts where it's, you know, happiness is a choice, happiness is... A decision you make um, yeah yeah so I mean what I, what I would say is uh, what I would say is that uh, money can't buy happiness the research that I talk about in the book is that uh, if you're if one is very poor and one gets uh, a, a little bit more materially people will feel better from that they will actually feel more safe and more secure uh, but there's a certain point, research says, maybe around $75,000 per year on average in the U.S., where more money doesn't make a difference. Um, and you could say, well, I live in the Bay Area, but it's way too expensive. But the, the point is that there's a point of diminishing returns. Okay, so um, part, of, part of what I like is I like to quote Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. And when he was in these concentration camps dealing with people who were suicidal for pretty good reason, <laughs> given the horrific circumstances they were in, what he would ask them is, what does the world still need from you? Right? He wouldn't say, how can I help you? He would say, what does the world still need from you? And one man wanted to uh, survive so he could write a book. Another man wanted to survive so he could see his beloved daughter. And so the question I have for the readers of my book is, what does the world still need from you? That which is unique and beautiful and special and impactful. And I think if you really focus on that, that will create more happiness. Finding that, that balance of pleasure and purpose. 
Uh, I mean, the interesting thing is the research shows most Americans have more pleasure than purpose. Most people, obviously, there's huge income inequality in our country, but most people are materially comfortable enough, but they don't lack, but they, I'm sorry, but they're lacking in purpose. And, um, and so I encourage people to really try to focus on that, which they'll find meaningful and purposeful and, and volunteer work's part of it. Finding a career that you think has a positive impact is part of it. So that's, 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 that's part of what I would, I would add in terms of the, the work stuff. All right, chapter five, the McCarthy happiness matrix. So tell us about this. Yeah, you know, being an MBA, I figure I had to create some sort of two-by-two two matrix. And, uh, but, but honestly, you know, there is a value why we MBAs love to do two-by-two two matrices, and that's because it can start getting more nuanced and really help you think in a, in a more insightful way about what you're really talking about. So uh, let me say, I was kind of like paging forward to where it is, because we, remember, we talked about pleasure and purpose, and and then we get to the matrix where it's, Low pleasure, high purpose, high pleasure, low purpose. Anyway, so I think I'm kind of holding it here. Can you read that okay, Rena? Yes. You, you see that? So, so with that, really, I think it's useful because it, it helps you think about what you do. And then there's a writing exercise where you fill things in on your own. So like, like if we have an example of high pleasure – if we t have a low pleasure, low purpose, I'd say being in, being in prison could be low pleasure, low purpose. Doing meaningless work for a boss I hate. Low pleasure, low purpose. Okay, that, that sucks. And then you really need, you, now how you think about it can help. But ideally, you're going to get out of that quadrant into you're doing work that you really love, that you find meaningful. Now, there's other examples like high pleasure, low purpose, like eating a great meal, very pleasurable. Not a lot of purpose, probably, um, but it, it's nice to think about that. And then when you get to something like high purpose, low pleasure, okay, that might be studying for a big exam. And it's helpful to remember that. It's like, you know, there's a reason why I'm doing this. I'm working hard. I'm studying hard so that I can pass this exam. I can get this degree. I can get this job. I can earn money for my family, whatever it is. So, if, again, this is about reframing and thinking about why Am I doing what I'm doing? This is the purpose part. And really the best, the best part is what I'd call high, high pleasure, high purpose. That could be in the zone, working on some sort of project that you find meaningful, challenging, fun, interesting. It can be playing soccer in the backyard with your kids or teaching your daughter how to golf, right? It can be family reunions. So as much as possible, if you can find something that is high purpose, high pleasure, that's great. But uh, I have a writing exercise where I actually, you know, give you the matrix and it's, it's, it's blank and I ask you to sort of fill it out. And it's a way for you to kind of think about all the activities you're doing and, you know, how would you fill this out? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So That's a great exercise. How do you get into experiencing flow? Because that's, again, a word that gets thrown around a lot. Yeah. especially by high achievers in Silicon Valley, like, oh, I want to get into the flow. And of course, huh. nootropics for that, right? <laughs> this pill or you can get into cryo or and I've done cryo, I've kind of tried it all. So, so there's all these people trying to hack the flow and you've got your own perspective on it. So share that, please. Yeah, you know, so, I mean, that's a good question. So there's, there's basic stuff to set yourself up for maximum productivity. 
Okay. Like I wanted this, I want this interview to go well right now. So I got a good night's sleep last night. Didn't drink any alcohol last night before <laughs> I went to bed. Got up, did my normal, uh, I went for a swim this morning, which I always do when I want to really be at my peak performance later in the day. Uh, I did my meditation, my affirmations after my swim. Uh, so these are all things I do to be at my maximum, like alertness, focus, ate my, you know, what I like to. So that, that's just like being in, in your best physical, mental state for anything, okay? Uh, and some people will be doing that day in and day out all the time, right, to just be as, as on as they can. Okay, that's one thing. But if you're working on something that you don't care about, for an organization you don't care about, it doesn't matter. Your brain is going to shut off and say, this sucks, this is boring, this is stupid, I don't care about it. Okay, so you can only hack that so far. Then what you do is let's get real about it. Okay, this is not a trick. This is not a game. This is doing stuff that you care about, that you're passionate about. Some of the questions in the book are things like if you had five years to live, again, this is you know mortality as a catalyst. If you had five years to live, what would you be doing with your life? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, you'd sit on a beach for a while and sip my ties and have all that pleasure. But after a while, you'd say, you know, okay, now I've got four and a half years left. What kind of a legacy do I want to have? What do I want to find meaningful? So I think people often find flow when they do whatever the heck they want without any impetus at all, without any pressure at all. And, and you know, another question is if you were independently wealthy, what would you do? You know, yes, you can sit on the beach and buy a boat and whatever for a while, but after a while, maybe you'd want to start, I don't know what that is, maybe you'd want to be a yoga instructor, maybe you'd want to help at a refugee camp somewhere, maybe you'd want to help with, with an orphanage somewhere, maybe you want to volunteer for Habitat for Humanity, or, I mean, there's people who just visit folks in uh, retirement facilities just to hold their hand and give them some human, human contact. Right, and that's meaningful stuff. Absolutely. So, but flow could be doing financial analysis as a, as an investor. Flow could be being a product manager. And the cool thing is, is you know, there's all sorts of exercises of you know, think about times in your life when you're in flow. What was that? I mean, maybe you were cooking, right? Maybe you were playing soccer in the backyard with your kids. Mm -hmm. um, but if you if you think about that, and then if you can think about well can I make a career out of this? If not a career, can I at least make it a hobby or can it be a side gig or something like that? Um, but ideally the work you do day in and day out gets you in flow as much as possible, but you can't fake it and there are no shortcuts to it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Chapter six, how much of your happiness do you really control? Ah, yes. So it's a very short chapter, but basically, Sonia Lubomirsky, who's a professor at UC Riverside, she's, she's written a tremendous book called The How of Happiness. And uh, it's, it's full of really great research. But part of what she says is about 60% of your happiness as a result of your genetic makeup, how you're born, and then a, a tiny part really is just your external circumstances, like whether you're married or not whether you have a good job or not, but 40% is really what you think about and how you think. So it's not 100%. You know, we, we can't just, you know, be happy all of a sudden in just a sort of automatic way. 
But, but that is 40% of your happiness that you control. And, and realizing that can make a, a big difference in how you go through your day. Chapter 7, Serenity Prayer. Yes. Prayer? yes. And when should we do it? Yeah, so, uh, so you know, the Serenity Prayer was developed by this American uh, Christian theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, in the 1930s and 40s. And, um, and by the way, my book, you know, it pulls from all different sorts of spiritual traditions, and I have no sort of religious agenda whatsoever. Um, but the Serenity Prayer is beautiful because it's got me, I have the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And... I've been saying that to myself as one of my affirmations for more than 20 years. Kurt Vonnegut wrote about it 50 years ago in Slaughterhouse-Five, uh, which is when I was first introduced to it. So, and what's cool about it is it's got, it's got the pleasure part there as well, and it has the purpose part as well, right? So I realized that the Serenity Pair was a perfect framework for my happiness framework of pleasure and purpose. And that really kind of leads on to the rest of the book where we're going to talk about these different practices which have been scientifically proven ways to, to help you boost your, your happiness. All right, chapter eight, beware the comparing mind. And I do know that that is clearly the start of a lot of angst for a lot of people. That there's many different models of leadership. There's kind of the typical, very kind of testosterone-driven Superman kind of model. And that's one model, okay, but it's not the only one. And, and there's different ways to be powerful. There's different ways to be wise. There's different ways to be courageous without necessarily having the sort of Superman model or even the Wonder Woman model, right? So it's, it's awesome that you recognize that about yourself. And obviously, it's worked very well for you. And for me, I talk about the comparing minus this concept through Buddhism, which basically says as long as you're comparing yourself to other people, you're going to be frustrated you're going to set yourself up to lose pretty much automatically. And, and yet it's very natural that, we, and I'm, I'm probably much more competitive than you are, although honestly, I don't think I'm that competitive, really. But many people are. Many, many people are. And I'm very much a comparing mind kind of person. I don't know if I learned this from my mom. Uh, but, you know, with these like very deeply seated aspects of how we think about life. But, uh, but the comparing mind is basically where you're sort of constantly saying, well, I've, you know, I've got a good job, but someone has a better job. I've got a good education, but they've got a better education. I've got this many followers on social media, but this person has 10 times as many. And on and on and on. And, uh, and you're setting yourself up for failure when you do that because there will always be somebody who's smarter than you, better looking than you, younger than you, richer than you, um, more talented, you know, I mean, just on down the line. And, and, and it's natural to do that because life is competitive. There are winners and losers in society in terms of who gets the job, who gets the promotion, who gets the IPO, and who doesn't, right? So this is real. Uh, and also, we're bombarded with advertising, which is constantly telling us we're inadequate, right? You'll, you know, so, so what I say is, if you're going to compare, compare to who you were before. And one of the writing exercises I have is think about who you were 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago. How have you learned? How have you grown? How have you improved? That's a comparison, which is because only you have really walked in your, in your path, you know. So if you do that, then one is you're going to be much more fair to yourself and you're going to stop comparing yourself to whoever was the class valedictorian 
if it didn't happen to be you. <laughs> um, and then you're going to feel better about yourself as well. And when you find yourself doing this, I mean, my wife calls me out on it. She's like, Jim, that's the comparing mind. I say, oh, yeah, you're right, honey. <laughs> Let me just, I am where I am. This is what, here's how the book sales are going. Here's how my social media followers are. I'll just keep going. I'll just keep going. And, 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 that's, that, and I feel that takes a lot of stress off, off myself. All right, chapter nine, enjoy the journey. Easy to say, so yeah. easy to say, so hard to do, right? So what are some insights on what have you found? How do you learn to enjoy the journey and not constantly be looking at the next goalpost or milestone or, or looking back and saying all the terrible things that have happened? Yeah, so, so part of that is just accepting that what's done is done. And there's no way to undo the past. Uh, part of that is realizing that you have always had challenges in your life. And you always will have challenges in your life. And that doesn't mean that there's some sort of mistake. I mean, when I was younger, I used to kind of think, well, if I, if I keep on working hard and I make good decisions, then I'm just going to get to this point where I have just fixed my life. <laughs> and my life is just going to be fixed and it's just going to be fine. It's just going to be perfect. And as I got older, I realized there's always something going on. There always has been something going on. There always will be something going on. Now the challenges might change, right? The challenges you had as a 25 year old woman are different than you probably had when you were 35. And I think you're older than that right now, you know, yeah, and, mm -hmm. and, and you know, when you're 65 or 95, those, those challenges will change, but they're still going to be there. And I find this is helpful because when I remind myself of that, it's like, God, this is part of my life and it kind of sucks right now. Then I realize, well, okay, and guess what? That might be resolved in three years, but there's going to be something else. And when, they, when I realize that, then I can, I can relax a little bit and I can realize this is kind of normal. Suffering is a normal part of life. So, so I think so the challenge with, with this, Jim, is that there's two conflicting points of perspective, right? One is which says you're a boat on a river that's moving. Just enjoy the boat ride. And sometimes the boat's going to go up. Maybe sometimes it's going to hit a rock. You're really not in control. So just sit down when it goes up, enjoy it. When it hits a rock, don't freak out because you know, you're going to get back on track because there is something that's planned it all out for you. It's a journey. Just enjoy it. And there's the other perspective. And both the voices are equally loud and equally definitive in their perspectives. And the other perspective is, no, no, you're in charge. You're making the decisions that are guiding this boat. You're the captain. So take charge. Don't sit back and complain or whine. Take charge and you're in control. And, and what's interesting is, I think different people have different takes on this, but my take is, if you say that I'm in charge and then things don't go your way, which they won't go your way. You know, I'm, I'm 48. So you don't get to 48 without realizing, oh, it doesn't matter what I did. There were things that were not going to go a certain way. I wasn't in control. I don't care what anybody tells me how much meditation I do. There were things that were not completely in my control. And so I actually feel sometimes there's a lot more of sadness, anxiety, depression that comes from thinking you're in control and then feeling like a failure because it didn't transpire the way you hoped it would. So it's actually, I feel that it's easier to be happy when you have a little distance from outcome. Like I'm going to do what I'm going to do, 
but I'm going to assume that really it's not in my control. And I'm going to take however the results are with a smile because I can't change it. Where do you come out on each of these? Right. So, so those are excellent questions. And a couple of things I say at a high level is one is in really what you're describing is where the serenity prayer comes in. Right, the serenity prayer comes back to me. I have the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, even if I tried really hard to do something and it did not go the way I wanted. I need to have the serenity to accept that I tried the best I could, and it just did not work out the way I wanted. And that happens kind of every day in our lives if we're human beings, right? The other is, but I have the, may have the courage to change the things I can, right? That's where I am going to try to take control. Do the best I can, especially if it takes some courage to do it. And it's not easy, but I want to do it. It's meaningful. It's purposeful. I'm going to work hard for that, right? That could be the low, low pleasure, high purpose stuff. Um, and then the wisdom to know the difference and the wisdom to say, you know, I mean, I, I got, I've been fired once in my life um, from, a, from a startup with some very high, uh, high profile VCs in Silicon Valley. And it did not feel good. But uh, when I, talked to one of the VCs afterwards, I said, you know, I know in my heart I did the best I could. Mm-hmm. It might have been crappy. <laughs> it might have been wrong. I, a different person would have handled it differently and not gotten fired. But for who I was then, I did the best I could. And I, and what else could I have done? Right. You know, not take the job. Okay. But, you know, now there's, there's another thing, Rena, I want to share to answer your question. And, and, and I, we touch on it later in the book. And that's what I call equanimity. And equanimity is the idea that we label things as good or as bad right. all the time. Right. And the point is, is that there's a logical person would say, I broke my leg. That's bad. I made a lot of money at a company. That's good. I had daughters. That's great. Something went wrong here. That's horrible. And we do that all the time. And it's normal to do that all the time. But the Buddhists call this, you know, sort of equanimity in terms of saying, you know, I'm not so sure that was such a great thing. Or I'm not so sure that was such a bad thing. And so one of the exercises I do at the very end of the book is I say, you know, make a list of all the great things that have happened to you. And then make a list of the things that were heartbreaking, you were crying, you know, real tragedy. And then see how these things are related. And most people will start connecting the dots. And they'll start realizing that, God, you know, if, if that hadn't happened, I would never would have moved cities. And then there was that tragedy, and that didn't work out, but that led me to meeting someone else. And then I fell in love with this person. You know, so you just kind of go back and forth. And I think if you have that kind of equanimity and distance, it's fine to have an opinion. It's fine to try the best you can, but it's okay to realize, you know, I don't know. I, I'm just going to keep chugging along. I'm going to be resilient. I'm going to have a growth mindset. I'm going to keep doing the best I can. And that's all you can do. And then you're not freaked out when things don't necessarily work the way you want. And you don't get too confident, overconfident when things do work the way you want as well. Does that make sense? Absolutely. All right, chapter 10, forgiveness. Forgiveness. Yeah, so forgiveness is a lot about living in the present, right? Forgiveness is a lot about saying, I give up all hope on changing what happened before. I give up all hope on having a better childhood. 
I give up all hope on having a better divorce, <laughs> right? It's like, <laughs> like, this happened. It might have been horrible at the time. It might have been okay at the time, but it is done. And I think that when you can be at, at peace with that and realize, you know, okay, going forward, I can make decisions. Going forward, I can, I can be a better husband. Going forward, I can be a, a better dad. Going forward, I can do these things. But what's done is done. That's part of the living in the moment. That's part of enjoying the journey, honestly, because you're not hung up on something that happened before. And I'd like to quote Fred Luskin, who uh, is uh, associated with Stanford University, uh, and he's done like a Stanford Forgiveness Project. He's done some really great work. Mm -hmm. And what, what Fred says is uh, a couple of things. One is he says that forgiveness is when you make peace with the fact that the world gave you something different than what you wanted. Yeah. Right? You wanted this. And the universe gave you that. Yeah. It can be huge things. It can be small things. And what he says is this approach is to, the, I think the simplest thing is to reframe that instead of being the victim of your story, you're the hero of your story. Mm -hmm. Right? Instead of, oh, my God, these horrible people doing these horrible things to me. Wow, I'm a victim. And believe me, there's, there's a lot of horrible things that happen in this world. Mm -hmm. But the people who carry around this, this burden of victimhood, it's not very constructive for them. Mm -hmm. And if they can say, yes, this was horrible, this was wrong, this was a terrible injustice, I'm going to do everything I can to not let this happen again. And look how tough I am. Look how strong I am. Look how brave I am. Look how resilient I am. That no matter what happened before, Right here, right now, I can be kind, I can be loving, I can be caring, I can be resilient, I can be beautiful to be around. And that, that's, that's really a beautiful way to go through life. It's important to remember that forgiveness is not for the other person. Exactly. It's, it's for you. Exactly. And if you remember that, then it takes the courage of, of, of self-love and self-compassion and self-forgiveness in many ways and to say, you know, and, and in, the, in, in the book, I talk about a TED Talk of a woman, I think she was from Iceland, and she was raped by her boyfriend like 20 years ago. Uh, he was visiting from, I think, Australia. And they have this incredible TED Talk where they're talking about how she learned to forgive him uh, for her sake, not for his sake. And, and um and it's very, it's very, very powerful. All right. Chapter 11, Embrace Equanimity. What is that about? Right. So this is, this is what I was talking about before. Of either we label things as good and we label things as bad. And, uh, and I, it, it's funny. I, there's various examples. But one, I, I did this when I was blogging a few years ago. Where I wrote about the founders of WhatsApp. And they didn't get hired at Facebook. And then they went... Well, first of all, they were, they were startup guys, and, and I actually knew one of the guys from Yahoo, Brian Acton. Brian wanted to get hired at Facebook. He didn't get hired at Facebook. He went and founded a company that became WhatsApp. Facebook then acquired WhatsApp, and it's like, oh, well, that was bad that he didn't get hired, but it was good that he founded WhatsApp, and it was great that he got acquired by Facebook. And then Brian Acton is leading the Delete Facebook campaign right now. Yes. <laughs> oh, so it's bad that he got acquired by Facebook. <laughs> Or is it good? 
you know? And so, I mean, that's just a very Silicon Valley example, but it gets to like all these things in our lives. Like, like I think right now you might say it's really great that you got your cancer diagnosis. Absolutely. And I say the same thing. Oh, absolutely. And I, I'm very grateful for both my illnesses. Yeah. You know, and you know, things might change in the future and we might think differently about that. But So that's a big part of it. We're going to get to that chapter next, which is chapter 12, meditation. But I'll tell you, um, and I do meditate a lot, and I spend a lot of time doing a lot of what's called triyas. My perspective is everything's good. I know it's sort of with this in pieces, it's neither good nor bad. It is. Mm. It just is, right? Mm. And I look at, no, nope, everything's good. So I just don't know why it's happening. I don't know, maybe this is happening because I need to go left instead of right. So as you know, I'm now doing this Wishing Well Foundation. I've got boot camps and I'm doing podcasts and I'm doing this leadership wellness dinner. There's all these things that I'm doing. And of course, every day, five things go wrong at a minimum. Yeah. And it used to be a very different approach. Now my approach is it's all good. You know, maybe it wasn't meant to be, or maybe this, this means I got to rethink this and I got to do this. And it, it's instinctive. I no longer have to pause and say, I need to look at this as a good thing. Like that conversation isn't happening. It's this instinctive, not a big deal, move on. It's, I wish I had learned this two decades ago. My life would have been a lot more joyful. I probably wouldn't have ended up with cancer. So um, <laughs> I, now, you know, one of the things that I tell everybody is, it doesn't matter what's happening, it's good. There's something that's going to come out of it that you are going to experience. You're going to grow and you're going to be a better person than you can ever imagine. You just don't know what it is. So that's my two cents on, uh, on that. Next chapter, meditation. Okay, but I must say that, sorry, I must say I love what you just said because I, I'm not as involved as you are in that respect. I'm still sort of, this isn't going right. I need to fix it. You know, the business is not growing the way I want okay, that's telling me that I need to work harder or work smarter or change the strategy. Um, but we maybe were saying the same thing, but you're, you take it more like the challenges is like the universe giving you feedback. Yes, And exactly. all, feedback, all feedback is good. All, all feedback, feedback is positive. As, exactly. long as, as long as you're willing to listen and kind of course, course correct, right? That's exactly it. I think yeah. everything that happens that's negative is happening for a reason. We just... Are, to your point, not listening, not paying attention. We're so focused on reacting, right? It's always that instant reaction. Mm -hmm. And if you step back and you say, well, what is the meaning of this? Maybe it's not something I'm meant to do. Maybe it's not the right direction or it's feedback. Maybe the timing is not right. Yeah. Maybe this isn't the time. I'm going to put it to bed. I'm going to come back to it. Maybe I'll come back to it a couple of weeks later or a month later. But it's all good. Like it's, it's back to I prefer being in a little rudderless boat, going on my little river ride, <laughs> and going, oops, I hit a bump. Yay, this is a wonderful crescent, <laughs> right? I'm just having fun on a, on a, um, on a joy ride or, or a roller coaster ride. It's just, just a roller coaster ride. So, Great. All right, chapter 12, meditation. What, what is something new that you've learned about meditation and happiness? So, so I'm happy to say that a lot of people are doing meditation today that were not doing it 30 years ago or 35 years ago when I was first introduced to meditation. Um, and that's, that's phenomenal. I think there's still people who are very skeptical about it. And so I bring in a lot of scientific research on the benefits of meditation. 
I remind people that there's a lot of different ways to meditate. Sometimes, med- you know, there's sitting meditations, there's eating meditations, there's listening meditations. And, and I've also found that, uh, you know, this is, this is not just for kind of the hippy-dippy, new-agey, California kind of people. I mean, it's very relevant in a business setting that you can be frustrated or angry or get off of a tough phone call and you can literally, you know, be walking down the hall about to go into another meeting where you're, you're going to like, you know, lash out at your team because you're unhappy about something. And before you do that, you realize, whoa, wait a second. I'm, I'm angry. I feel hot. I'm sweating. I feel like I'm, you know, my jaws are, and, and if you can say, you know what, let me just do for this for a second. Wait a second. Okay, now I can go into that meeting, right? Relaxed, focused right here, right now. Yes, there was that angry phone call, and that was three minutes ago, but that, that's done. Now, I might be able to address that two hours from now after my next two meetings, but right now, just a little bit of deep breathing, paying attention to how I feel physically, emotionally, uh, can get me back-centered to here, so the next, when I walk into that meeting 30 seconds from now, I'm at my best, I'm focused, I'm kind uh, with the people I'm with, I'm creative, and your team is going to benefit from that as well because you're not carrying this baggage from over there that has nothing to do with, with what's here. So there's, there's a lot of things I could say about meditation, but that's maybe one very simple, tiny example. And that's beautiful. And it's, it's taking that pause to regroup, recollect, and not react. Because I think that's where all trouble starts is that instant reaction and not being in control. And I think meditation gives you control. It Agreed. gives you the power to pause. And it, and it fits very much with the, may have the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Yes. Right? Yes. So much. So that's, that's the, uh, and it's also very pleasurable to kind of be at peace and not constantly be fighting and trying to change everything. Absolutely. Oh my God. It is so glorious. It is it's just letting go. It's this feeling of, ah, oh, I've let go. I can breathe because I don't have to constantly control everything and make it work the way I want to. It's actually a way better way to live between you and me. Yeah. And, and, and to that, I'll add, you know, when I, when I lead um, meditations in my workshops or keynotes, what, what I'll sometimes say is you don't have to have an opinion. Right. And, and, you know, we're raised and we're educated yeah. Uh, and in other countries, even more than here, I mean, I studied in Germany for a while where, every, you know, the critical thinking, critical thinking, yes. and, and that's great. But, uh, you know, you don't have to have an opinion on everything. You don't have to have an opinion on whether the person behind the counter is smiling enough at you or not. You don't have to have an opinion of whether even the food is as great as you'd like it to be. Or you don't have to have an opinion of whether the, the Golden State Warriors need to win their basketball game tonight or not. I mean... It's like, you know, the game's going to happen whether I decide who I'm rooting for or not. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I don't get to influence who wins. No. So, I mean, I'm not, Steph Curry doesn't always get to influence who he wins. So. <laughs> exactly. Although he was amazing at the last game that I watched him. Oh, he's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, chapter 13, affirmations, how to train your brain for success. So we right. train our brains for success? Yes, yes. 
Ah. Definitely. So, so the, you know, the, the cool thing is that a lot of people are doing meditation and that's wonderful. And that's really about the starting to accept the things I cannot change. But affirmations is really the, a practice that is scientifically proven to help you have the courage to change the things you cannot accept, right? The other side of the serenity prayer. And, and people used to laugh at meditations being really hokey and silly and dumb and new agey. But the neuroscience in the last couple of decades has proven that your brain is, neuro, is neuroplastic. There's neuroplasticity, which means how you think changes the structure in your brain on a neurochemical, biological level. So if you think negative thoughts all the time, then you're going to reinverse, you're going to reinforce the neurons mm -hmm. that are associated with negativity and depression and anger. And if you think positive things or optimistic things, you will reinforce those parts of your brain. And, and, they, and they now know enough about brain science to, to know those parts associated with compassion, anger, hatred, caring, forgiveness. So... So uh, Rick Hansen, who's a Bay Area neuropsychologist, says neurons that wire together fire together. Mm -hmm. So what that means is you can think, I'm, you know, I'm stupid, I'm dumb, I don't get along with the world, the system sucks, the bus system here sucks. You know, if you think negative things all day long, those will reinforce itself in your brain. But if you think all day long, I'm beautiful, I'm smart, I'm creative, I'm fun, I'm friendly, I'm efficient, if you think that all the time, those will reinforce in your brain as well. And, 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 and that can tie very much into gratitude as well of, of developing the practice of recognizing what's beautiful around you. Uh, so that's, that's affirmations. And, and I, I list in the, in the book many, many different examples of affirmations that I use or that people can use. And then I also invite the reader to, uh, to write out affirmations for themselves, which can be very powerful. Chapter 14, gratitude. What are you grateful for the most? I'm going to start Me? That. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm grateful for my wife. Uh, Great answer. Yes, yes. She's in the other room, and uh, I don't think she can hear me, but I, I think she'll probably watch this someday. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm grateful for my health, uh, that I'm still alive, that I'm taking great care of my health. I'm very grateful for my mom and dad who raised me in a wonderful way and made a, me have a lot of opportunities. Uh, I'm, even, I'm even grateful for my first marriage, which did not work out, but I learned a lot from that. I was able to have two daughters. I learned a lot from that experience as well. And I think all of that has helped me hopefully be a, a better man and a better husband in, in my second marriage now. And I'm very lucky. My wife is, is, is an amazing person. So there's a long, long list of things. I'm grateful for living in San Francisco. I'm grateful for have the career that I've had. Um, so many people have helped me with my book. I'm grateful for you, Rena, for, for giving me this opportunity to talk to you today. And every day, it's just it's a long list. And 80% of it is the same every day. Mm -hmm. And then 20% of it, I'll add, I'll add new wrinkles of, of uh, you know, oh, I'm, I'm grateful that a friend is coming in tonight. Or I'm grateful that, uh, you know, I had a really great, great, I'm at dinner last night. So looking for things to be grateful for and really having a mindset of gratitude completely reframes uh, how you go about life. And I think it's a, a very direct and you could say simple way to, to create more happiness in your life. There's a ton of science on gratitude and health, actually. 
Yeah. There's a ton of uh, link between feeling grateful and they've done sort of scientific tests on people and how it changes the chemical composition of their blood. It changes kind of their cortisol levels. So everyone out there who's suffering from adrenal fatigue of some sort or, you know, high cortisol, et cetera, gratitude first thing in the morning, last thing at night. I wrote a health journal. It was one of the things that I used to heal myself. And in the health journal, one of the first things, you know, right on the very top, it says, what are you grateful for? One word. You don't even, it doesn't need to be sentence. It doesn't need to be a book. It's like one word. You know, first thing in the morning, you wake up, you sit in your bed and you say one word. And, you know, to your point, it could be my wife. You're done. It's just bringing your, yourself back to, I'm blessed, right? It really, that's really what it is. It's getting to that sense of I'm blessed um, and then approaching life from that perspective of I'm blessed. So it, I think, and then I think when you approach world that way, then I think the universe responds differently than if you approach the world with I've been wronged. And I think a lot of us wake up every morning with this approach of I've been wronged. And yeah. yeah, you know, when, when, there, there, there's sometimes when I'm just having a crappy day and like everything's pissing me off and I realize, you know, I don't think the universe suddenly got really dark. <laughs> <laughs> if, and it's like, you know, maybe it's me. Maybe, maybe I'm the one with the chip on my shoulder on my chip on my shoulder today or whatever the metaphor is. So, uh, it, it usually takes like five things to like be building up. It's like, you know, I don't think the universe conspired just all of a sudden. Oh, there's something to be said for, you know, regression to the mean. Yeah. So you could yeah. be having a really tough day. Yeah. yeah. And, that, and that happens. Absolutely. No, I, I took a week off once. So what I do is I just take, take off. Oh. I mean, like, I'll just stop doing stuff. I'll be like, something's up. Everything's going <laughs> wrong. Instead of me sitting here suffering through this, you know what? I'm taking a break. I'm going on long walks and I'm catching up with friends. And I'm just going to take a pause because nothing is going right. Yeah. So I'll just take that again as feedback, like stop doing whatever it is you're doing. Just go away and come back a little bit later. Yeah. Um, all right. Chapter 15, the magical 1%. Who are these? What is this magical 1%? How yeah. So it's, it's certainly not referring to people. What it's referring to is time. And uh, it was funny. I was thinking about, you know, okay, so in the morning I do like 10 minutes of stretching and yoga. And then I do like, 10 minutes of affirmations and then I or do 10 minutes of meditation and 10 minutes of affirmations or maybe I'm driving my car to, to work if uh, the days when I was commuting and I started thinking well how, 10 minutes is not a long time in fact what percentage of my waking hours is 10 minutes and I realized it's almost exactly one percent mm. if you're if you're sleeping like a normal person 10 minutes is about one percent of your waking hours and I thought well, if you spent 10 minutes per day doing meditation, affirmations, gratitude, or forgiveness practice in any kind of combination, that would make the other 99% of your day better and probably a lot better. And so I call it the magical 10%, although it's not magic, right? For all the reasons I go through, all the science, all the scientific research in the book, it's not magic. These are scientifically based uh, practices, all of which can help you create, create your happiness. So, and it's funny because I shared my book with a friend of mine who happens to be the, uh, the president of uh, Regis High School in New York City, and, uh, which is an all-boys Jesuit high school. And, and he, out of the whole book, he loved the magical 
And I think part of why is he's a priest and he probably prays every day. A lot maybe more for, than 1%. Yeah, probably more than 1%. But even if he prays just, you know, half of 1% per day, he sees the value of, you know, and for some people it's meditation, some people it's prayer, some people it's a walk in the woods, some people it's chanting or it's dancing or it's yoga. And, and my book attempts to give the reader a lot of different writing exercises to think about their life and what is meaningful and purposeful for them and how to create their happiness. And then a lot of these sort of daily practices which they can do in all different sorts of combinations to, to create their happiness. And that's why I call it a, a surprisingly simple guide to happiness. I like it. I like this as well, by the way, a lot. And the challenge, of course, as I believe, is habit, right? So anyone who's listening to this or watching this isn't already typically in the habit of doing what you're asking us to do. And so where we always fall apart from reading an inspiring book like yours and then getting to the outcome that you're promising is getting into those new habits. And your habit is very easy. It's 10 minutes. You know, how hard can that be? But we know it's really hard. So that's your next chapter, chapter 16, which is create good habits. Give us some hacks. How can yeah. someone execute these? Yeah, that's what, you know, I, I, uh, I've done whole workshops on, on goal setting before and, um, and I didn't want the book to be about that, but I thought we've come so far in the book and exactly like you said, people are like, oh, I'd love to do that, but I don't know how to make it happen. So I really did some research on, on habits and actually the chapter on building good habits is, is a very short chapter, but basically the principle is uh, put things in your calendar so that there's a reminder or figure out some kind of way to remind you. It's not about willpower, it's about the reminder. And as long as you've got good reminders, usually it's pretty easy to do the activity that you want to do. And the other thing is about building tiny habits. And so uh, BJ Fogg is associated with Stanford University and he's done amazing work on, on building tiny habits. And, and he'll say, you know, take a habit and just build it on top of an existing habit. So maybe it's, you know, in the morning after I drink my cup of coffee, I will sit down for 10 minutes and do meditation or, or at night, after I take a shower and before I get in bed, I'll write in my gratitude journal for five minutes. You know? So you take an existing habit, build on that. And, um, and from that, you can then keep on layering more and more things. I mean, I used to do stretching in the morning, then it became stretching and yoga, then it became stretching more yoga, and then I added some push-ups, and then stretching yoga push-ups, and then meditation, and then affirmations and then writing my daily goals in an email to myself. And, and on the one hand, you could say, oh, that's nice, Jim. You've got all this free time in the morning. But for me, it's a priority because mm -hmm. I know that that magical 10% or even, I'm sorry, that magical 1% or even that magical 2% of my day gets me grounded, gets me focused, gets me grateful. And then the, the other 98% of my waking hours have a much deeper sense of purpose, a much greater feeling of fulfillment. And by the way, it's really a confidence booster as well. When I realized that I've been stretching every morning for the last 32 years, without a break, right, every morning, and I didn't start off saying, I'm just going to do this for the next three decades. Um, but when I started doing it, like, I'll do it today, and I'll do it tomorrow, and I'll just keep going then that starts impacting all other sorts of aspects of my life where I feel like I have a lot of confidence. These are, these are great tips, Jim. This is a 
phenomenal book. For those of our listeners, viewers who want to access some of the wonderful things you're doing, yeah, your free book. I think it is potential free ebook giveaway. Some links to your website. Tell them how can they reach you. Right. So um, my name is Jim McCarthy, and uh, my website is jimmccarthy.com. That's J-I-M-M-C-C-A-R-T-H-Y.com. The name of the book is Live Each Day, A Surprisingly Simple Guide to Happiness. And on Amazon, you can get it in the ebook form and also in the paperback form. And on other channels like Barnes & Noble, you can get it in the paperback form as well, uh, worldwide, as far as I can tell. And uh, it was the number one Amazon bestseller on the, uh, on the ebook side of things. So, so, so what, what I want to share, Rena, with, with the listeners and, and people who are watching this is um, I would be delighted to share a, uh, a, a free ebook with a certain number of people. So all, all they have to do is, well, first of all, they can get the first chapter of my book for free if they come to my website. So there's a pop-up there. And there's also a, a, a form where it's just, you know, if you want the first chapter of my book, you can get it for free and just go to jimmccarthy.com, J-I-M-M-C-C-A-R-T-H-Y.com. Um, and if a person emails me and they'd like a free copy of the ebook, the entire book, send me an email. Let me know why you'd like it or what you like. That's about. very kind of you, Jim. Again, thank you so much. This is a phenomenal book. For those of you looking to get to the happiness on a daily basis, this is the book for you. You can do it. You can wake up happy and sleep happy and just be happy all the time. I promise you, you can get there. If I can do it, you can do it. And this is a great, great Bible to help you get there. So with that said, stay smiling. I'm going to see you on another podcast. Thank you, Rena. That's a wrap. Share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps Facebook and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.